This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Tonight, we're taking a look at housing inequality in our country. It's a growing issue which New Yorkers consistently rank as one of the top challenges that they face. We're previewing WNET Group's upcoming virtual town hall series, Close to Home, where over the course of the next five weeks, the series will examine housing inequality from the perspective of frontline leaders in their fields, representing a mix of communities throughout New York and beyond. The town halls will tackle hard questions centering on intersecting issues of home ownership, evictions, gentrification, homelessness, and food insecurity. Now, this evening, as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative, are five panelists who will be taking part in the series. Now, first, I'd like to welcome Mark Crane. Mark is the executive director of Dream of Detroit, an organization that provides affordable housing and organizes residents in the Detroit metro area's Muslim community. Mark, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you so much, Jenna. And next, I'd like to welcome Nushrat Rahman, a reporter with the Detroit Free Press and Bridge Detroit. Nushrat, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you so much, Jenna. Also, I'd like to welcome Rosalinda Guillen. She is the founder of Community to Community, an organization focused on food justice and food sovereignty. Rosalinda, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. And next, I'd like to welcome Egyptian-born and New York City-based Fluka. Fluka is a singer, rapper, and activist. Fluka, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And last, but certainly, certainly not least, I'd like to welcome Renee Ghost. Renee is a Mexican-American singer, songwriter based in New York City. Renee, thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. Thank you for having me, Jenna. Absolutely. So with all of that in mind and housing being such a uh, just robust and diverse issue, but yet deeply affects everyone. Mark, I want to start with you and get um, at least an understanding of what it is that you're seeing, the needs and the challenges in a city like Detroit and how they may or may not be similar to what we're seeing here in New York City. Yeah, absolutely, Jenna. So, you know, I think oftentimes uh, what, we're, what we're dealing with here in Detroit is, you know, somewhat unique, uh, but as is often the case, a bit of a canary in the coal mine, if you will. And so I think gentrification here in Detroit um, looks different than it does in a lot of the coastal cities. Um, we haven't necessarily seen the influx of capital uh, that folks typically associate with gentrification, but what we absolutely have seen is the displacement um, that folks uh, associate with gentrification. And so um, in Detroit, um, of course, we've been losing population for a long time as the automotive industry shrunk and moved elsewhere, et cetera. But most immediately, when we think about the last decade, Detroit has really dealt with a property tax foreclosure crisis. Um, and so what we've seen is really a, um, uh, what one uh, academic, Bernadette Tuahene, has called a predatory state. 
uh, or predatory city. And that is to say the city itself has been over-assessing Detroit residents. Uh, and that has started a cycle where folks have been driven into property tax foreclosure. The county takes their home and then auctions it off to the highest bidder, uh, who oftentimes is a, a speculator, not always, but oftentimes is a speculator or someone else who doesn't have the city's you know, best interest in mind. And so what that's done is it's really hollowed out Detroit neighborhoods over the last decade. Over 100,000 people driven into property tax foreclosure between 2011 and 2015. Tens of thousands of families moved out of their homes. Uh, moved out of family heirlooms, moved out of homes that they inherited, right? The grandma's home, um, had to having their dignity attacked through this process, really. And a lot of times doing it and filling it in isolation until, you know, organizers and researchers in the city really uncovered and started to shed light on this issue. So that has been a huge driver, again, of the displacement that has happened. Um, and then what we expect to see is that influx of capital that's going to move in a new wave of people and is going to kind of forever lock out the working class folks who used to make up you know, the largest part of Detroit's residence base. All right. Well, Nishran, I think a lot of what we just heard from uh, Mark would sound very familiar to a lot of New Yorkers. But from the perspective of your reporting, um, what are at least you seeing an understanding from a perspective of neighborhoods um, not only gentrifying, but thus changing some of the culture and the um, essence of the city of Detroit? Yeah, I think what Mark was talking to about the impacts of the foreclosure crisis really is illustrated in, you know, the housing stock in the city, but also the changing dynamics of of neighborhoods, right? And the, and the people that were there. Um, and I think one thing I think about a lot is a home. Um, the reason why I love reporting about housing is that a home is, is a pillar, right, in a community. Housing is so important for various reasons, but one of the most important reasons is it's not only a, a roof over your head, but it can be a family heirloom, like Mark said, right? And so with the foreclosure crisis and another issue we're kind of seeing is like families who are dealing with like title issues, right? That's been cropping up a lot. With these compounding factors, you have housing that's really unstable and a, and a home that's not uh, able to stay within a family, right, within a family lineage. And when that happens, then family members might, you know, be driven out of neighborhoods and communities. Um, we have that side of things, but we also have the fact that there are, you know, a lot of renters in Detroit, right? And so there are a proportion of homeowners, obviously, and the unique struggles that homeowners face, but there are a lot of renters. And with that, there are many struggles as well. So we have younger people who are moving in as renters. Um, we have homeowners who are becoming renters, right? And so you have these shifting dynamics that are changing um, the city. And I think the thing about Detroit is that unlike a lot of other cities, it's a big city and there are so many pockets, right? It's really cool. If you drive down Detroit, um, you know, I, I live near the Bunglatown area, which is next to Hamtramck, a separate city within uh Detroit, the houses look very different, you know, two-story bungalows. Then if you drive, you know, 10 minutes down, you have, you know, a diff totally different dynamic. And so, um, you know, you kind of see um, the impact of a lot of these factors we've been talking about, like the foreclosure crisis and, you know, the changing dynamics from becoming homeowners to renters play out in the city in different pockets. And a lot of an ongoing conversation that's happening amongst, you know, the people that I talk to is, um, you know, who who is Detroit you know, growing for, right? Like if we're seeing a lot of investment in certain pockets of the city, but is it extending out into um, the broader neighborhoods? Because Detroit is such a sprawling and big city, are we seeing those investments going to those different pockets in those neighborhoods? I think that's an excellent question that uh, a lot of people don't always think about when we consider uh, 
gentrification of neighborhoods and investments as uh, developers love to phrase it into neighborhoods, but where are they happening? Uh, Rosalinda, I wanna bring you in and get your take on um, the way you're seeing at least investment in neighborhoods affect the communities that you're serving. That's interesting because you know, we serve immigrant families, low-income Latino workers, and farm workers. So when you're talking about food security and farm workers, I'm a third-generation farm worker, Mexican-American from Texas, right? So then we, having an heirloom home, you know, hearing you speak about heirloom homes, for farm workers, we very rarely can do that. We're some of the poorest workers in the nation. We're actually feeding everybody else, but... And we're also dealing with um, neighborhoods that are in rural areas. So for us, a neighborhood is a big swath of land where there's many times mono-agricultural production. Housing for farm workers is incredibly difficult to find. Um, and I think that's the biggest issue. Home ownership for immigrant families and farm workers in rural areas of the United States is extremely difficult. And our communities live in substandard housing Many of them live in um, company-owned housing by the huge agricultural, mono-agricultural, you know, industrial production farms across the United States. So for us, gentrification, for example, gentrification for us is um, Microsoft going into a beautiful um, Columbia River Gorge area and buying large pieces of land to set up um, computer production or computer input and displacing, in many cases, very, very low-income farm workers that have managed to buy homes or are renting homes. So across rural America, especially in Northwest Washington, where we are, this is a very, very good question that we're dealing with. Um, it's also related to climate change because in some of our rural areas, the housing is being impacted by the changing climate. But realistically, we have always had, um, it's part of the exploitative food system that home ownership is incredibly difficult. And those of us, I think I'm third generation, I am living in what I would call an heirloom home from my that my parents scraped to buy a little house in a small rural town that is now becoming gentrified. But I, I'm looked at as a privileged farm worker because the majority of farm workers in rural areas cannot own their homes. They don't make enough money for that. So I think I, I, I love the fact that I'm included in this conversation because farm workers in, the, in relation to food are generally excluded from these kinds of conversations um, it, from the big urban centers. And so we have, um, what do you call it? Partnerships with urban groups in housing issues. And we try to connect the rural element in relation to food security because we're producing the food that's needed in the cities, you know, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the times the folks in the cities cannot produce that food, but we're all really partners in the well-being of our communities at every single level, including housing. But substandard housing for low-income Latino workers, immigrants, and farm workers is rampant. You're talking mold, you're talking, you know, infestations of, of animals, rats, and other things. Um, it's a very very difficult um, issue for us to deal with. We're dealing with it all the time. So, well, 
I certainly, I was just going to say that I certainly would say that I definitely don't think that when people think gentrification, of course, we tend to think more urban neighborhoods. And second of all, we certainly wouldn't think of a company like Microsoft having an impact on that in terms of buying up land that could be used for housing. Uh, Renee, I want to turn to you. And um, again, a broad question, but something that I want to ask the entire panel, not only the effect of gentrification, but what would housing justice begin to look like from your perspective? You know, Jenna, um, I'm a queer Mexican-American singer-songwriter, an independent contractor. And so the kind of economic instability that is common amongst people of my community is, you know, artists specifically and artists of color and queer artists of color. You know, New York City is a city that is completely unaffordable uh, to many people. Um, But I think that the part that really worries me the most is the fact that sometimes we've been having to leave the city uh, because of inequality. And, you know, for me, one of the things that has become sort of it just makes sense to me is spending time abroad with my family in Mexico or subletting my place during the lower seasons of my work. And I don't think that that's something that creates security as a way of like life that you can have like a stable place where you can afford where rent can be affordable, especially in this economy and with the inflation, how it's going. And one of the other things that really becomes worrisome for me is the fact that gentrification is not something that we're only seeing in this country, but also in places like Mexico City, where some of the, uh, you know, more affluent neighborhoods have become completely flooded by what people are, what they're self-called digital nomads. Um, And, you know, they're not really welcome in Mexico City. And we see a lot of, there's even signs that say, you know, stop raising our rents because now this phenomenon is becoming international and people are being pushed out of neighborhoods such as Roma and Condesa by people who have good jobs and are just choosing to live to live cheaper. Um, you know, we're seeing phenomenons such as yoga studios now only offering uh, classes in English in other countries, you know, which is wow. really just just kind of bone chilling to me. Uh, and it's something that I've seen through my communities. Like I said, I'm very much in touch with uh, the Mexican queer community down there in, in Mexico City. And, uh, you know, just seeing that cross borders. And it also raises for me a lot of questions about border policy and how that's like sort of a one way conversation. Uh, you know, I was raised north and south of the Arizona Sonora border. Uh, and so just looking at that from the two different lenses is is so interesting to me. But for me to answer your question more directly, uh, housing equality would look like not having to sublet my own uh, room during the low season for musicians, which is basically from like November to February, at least in my experience, uh, just being able to at least dream of some time of someday buying a home seems unattainable and has seemed unattainable ever since I moved to New York City in 2007. Uh, Just knowing that as an artist, that's not an option for me Uh, or having to do uh, some other type of work uh, in tandem to be able to afford it. And seeing also, by the way, having been a restaurant worker in New York City, uh, seeing the way that the conditions that immigrants uh, live in, usually in the city, especially undocumented immigrants, where you have two or three people sleeping in a kitchen, you know, four people sharing a room. And so you have like 10, 12 people just in one uh, apartment here in Queens and in some neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Uh, there's obviously a big mismatch between that and neighborhoods where you're buying a $7 latte. 
Yeah, of course, of course. So speaking of artists, Faluka, I want to make sure to bring you in. I know that you use your work to tell a lot of these stories, but it seems as if um, the presence of artists is, becomes a big draw to people to want to live in a community. So how does gentrification specifically affect the artistic community? Well, I have to agree with everything everyone said is just super insightful and very much relevant to what I try to include in my music and my art and what I try to really stand for whenever I get a chance to represent my culture. And I think just as, you know, women of women of color, people of color in general in New York and anywhere, um, it's just becoming absolutely ridiculous to be able to just afford like a decent state of living and to not have to sublet your apartment every other month. I don't know a single friend that's not doing that right now. Um, and to have to juggle so many jobs to just be able to see yourself somewhere where you really have been wanting to be all your life. Um, it is absolutely insane. And, you know, all I can really do, all I can offer is to try to cultivate a safe space in my music and my art where we can kind of healthily escape together. Um, I don't really, I'm not waiting for the government to change things. I'm fully Egyptian. I don't even see myself as like, I mean, I'm an Egyptian American, but like, Back home, you have everybody, you know, fantasizing about the American dream and Western beauty and all of these different standards. And then they come out to the States and we're not welcome here. And it's just it feels like there needs to be some kind of radical change in the way that we are um, making space for people, specifically people of color, especially in a country that was literally built on the backs of people of color in the United States. So. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I keep my hope up. I try to, you know, always lead with love and to create a space in my mind or in my spirit mm -hmm. that I can share with people. Um, and it sounds like a bunch of craziness, but I think, you know, that we really do need to lean in and to really support artists at this time who are trying to have a voice when, you know, the government is not letting us have one. <laughs> okay, so... Keeping in mind, I mean, there's so much to talk about with this subject and all the more reason for people to definitely tune into uh, the town hall series. But with the last few minutes that we have left, I also want to ask, and this might sound like a glib, um, insensitive question, but for a lot of people, what you're describing are just market forces at work. This is just capitalistic market forces at work and people are supposed to learn to move and change with them. And so um, Mark, I'll go back to you and just say, what is your response to people saying that, well, a lot of what you're talking about in terms of neighborhood investment and gentrification and changes, that's just the market working? Huh, good question. So uh, I guess I guess a couple of thoughts. You know, number one, when we when I talk about the particular issue in, in Detroit with the property tax foreclosure crisis, and mind you, we, we know that overassessments are happening all across the country. This is absolutely not just the market at work. This is a failure of city administration. This is collusion with county administration. This is the state predating the, the population itself, the people. So, so that you know, that's a different situation. When we talk about what Mishrat mentioned earlier, this this transition from majority homeowner cities to renter cities, um, this is you know a, a market effect. But we just have to be clear: a lot of this is being driven by um, a lot of this is being driven by like super large investors, private equity firms who have turned their, their attention to uh, and other really large institutional investors who turn their attention to the housing market as the next big thing that they plan to exploit. So this isn't something where like, you know, these are not mom and pop landlords that are, you know, driving this, this situation. Um, this is a really 
small elite group of people who are benefiting at the expense of the rest of us. And in a place like Detroit, where we were a proud majority black city that had a, that was a majority homeowner city, um, to watch us go and, and become a majority renter city was really heartbreaking. And we sort of emerged out of that in the last year or so and become a, a majority homeowner city again. But what we're seeing is that the folks who are getting mortgages our young white folks are moving into the city. It's not the black grandmas and grandpas or middle-aged folks who lost their homes uh, to these crises. So it isn't it isn't actually a, a just uh, you know return. Um, and then and then the you know the last thing I'll say is uh, you know the the for black people to be specific, uh, the housing market has never really worked for us. Uh, this idea that homes are where we build our wealth has never been true at large for black people. It really only works if we're constantly chasing new development. It doesn't work whenever whenever neighborhoods become majority black, we see values artificially decrease, right? We see values artificially suppressed, right? We see, you know, false valuations on homes and bad appraisals, right? Millions of stories about folks getting a better appraisal when they have a white person show their home than when they show it as a black family, right? These types of things. And so what we're trying to do in Detroit and Dream of Detroit is just one of the groups working on this. And of course, you see them more more in some of the coastal cities. It's the community land trust. Uh, and for us in a neighborhood like ours, we're not, where we're not seeing rapid a rapid increase in, in capital and, and large investments, we're trying to get ahead of that. And we're trying to right now put as much, as many parcels, as many homes into the community land trust as we can to ensure permanent affordability in our neighborhood. And beyond just that, to ensure stability, because that's really what folks want. They want stable housing. They want stable communities. They want to know that this thing isn't going to be pulled from underneath me. They want to know that I can raise my family here and expect to pass on something to the next generation. Uh, and that, you know, the market or the city isn't going to be the thing that just comes and robs it up, robs, you know, robs me of it. And so, again, for us, one of those solutions is the community land trust as, as a tool that we're trying to deploy. Well, actually, Rosalinda, I want to go to you and also get your take on what I was asking earlier. What does housing justice look like to you? And do you see what's happening now as, again, as I said, it's just the market at work? We never uh, we never see that <laughs> at all. It's always been really clear to us that um, our communities have just basically been ignored and left out, even when we organize and try to get our voices in into the spaces where decisions are being made about land, about housing, about transportation to housing, about jobs. I mean, I think that that's one of the things about our communities is like, it's been very clear to us how left out we have been. And I think, you know, some of the comments about stability and well-being have a lot to do if you don't feel like you have a home. And our, a lot of our community is migratory. It's a landless, we are a landless workforce. Our organization also is working on, on building a land trust in rural areas where we're buying land to be able to join the production of food, our own organic uh, agroecological food with housing on it so that we can say as farm workers, if we live where we're producing food the way it's supposed to be produced, it's healthier for us and for the community. But, you know, I also want to say that there are some fundamental changes that have to be made in ur the urban growth, what do they call it? The growth management plans mm -hmm. and, and, and then the planning of cities and the planning of communities that there is some leftover redlining in institutional thoughts about how land should be used and how housing should be built and what kind of housing. It's like 
Developers, architects, and political leaders are stuck in a profit mode. And I think that we need to go fundamentally back to how the growth management um, is planned in our communities. And again, that's where we have, we're being ignored and we don't have access to that political decision-making space. And I think that that's in our communities, we're seeing that as a huge barrier, even when we organize, organizing for even just decent rental housing is not sustainable. It's not sustainable because it doesn't produce that stabilization and that well-being to be able to make to to have each generation be do better. You know, I think everybody is seeing that across the board. But I think it's it there needs to be a fundamental change in mm-hmm. urban planning, in growth management, and in the in the political structure itself and and which is guided by in profit. You know, for I we don't even think about market forces. It's pure greed profit and extraction from communities and land um, when, you, when you're talking about building housing or what kind of housing should be built. Well, we're coming up on the end of our time together. Unfortunately, like I said, there's just so much to talk about, but Nushra, I want to give you the last word and sort of pick up on what we were just hearing from Rosalinda about um, the institutional way that at least cities and governments, local governments are approaching uh the lore of developer checks versus the needs of the people. And at least what are you seeing in Detroit? I think one last thing that I'll add is that mm-hmm. I think the ARPA dollars that have been coming into Detroit, Detroit received more than $800 million in ARPA. We're seeing where those dollars are going, but a, a sizable portion of that has been going into housing. Um, so we're talking about down payment assistance. We're talking about eviction um, defense. Um, and so we'll kind of see where that's going to lead and the long-term um, effects that's going to have on families. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. But I think the discussion that you heard is all the more reason to check for the town hall series close to home. Um, It'll be over the course of the next five weeks through the WNET group. uh, And the series, of course, examining housing inequality from the perspective of the front lines, uh, frontline leaders in their fields, representing a mix of communities from throughout New York City and beyond. I want to thank all of my guests for joining me tonight. Really appreciate it and definitely looking forward to these important and powerful conversations. 